Amen. Well, I want to begin our time this morning by reading you a story. It's, a, it's the testimony of a man who, who confessed a very difficult time in his life several years ago. And I remember reading it, I think it was back in 2013 or so, and, and saving it for a moment like this because it was such a powerful story. So let me, let me just read it to you and then we'll dive into our, our text for today. Here's what he said. He said, I remember asking my wife, my wife Jeannie, does it get any better than this? Anyone looking at my life in 2004 would have agreed that I was very blessed. A beautiful wife, three remarkable children, a lucrative career in banking, and a passionate walk with the Lord. I had met my future wife in a lovely English rose garden in the summer of 1978, and after an amazing courtship, we were married in April 1981, including the vows of commitment for better or for worse. Believing that God had brought us together to use for his glory, we began our marriage in central London with a view to leading many people to faith in Jesus Christ. It was a wonderful time of growing in the Lord, and we placed our future entirely in his hands. In 2005, however, after 24 wonderful years of marriage and three children, the good times rapidly fell into the worst time of our lives. The wheels started to come off in virtually every area of life, and it soon became obvious that my faith was going to be tested as never before. Within a period of of a few months, our family was severely shaken on every side. First, I was betrayed at my workplace, and my career was put in jeopardy. Second, our beloved dog passed away. And third, a very close family member was diagnosed with a serious eye disease. But that was just the beginning. On November 8, 2005, our youngest son, Alex, who was 17 at the time, took a drug at a party that disoriented him and sent him into a psychotic state, resulting in him committing suicide. We were utterly and totally devastated and broken. Two months later, my sister, whom I was very close to, also passed away suddenly. And then shortly after that, our oldest son, Ben, came within an inch of losing his life in a terrible car accident. With all that grief and trauma surrounding her, my wife, Jeannie, was soon rushed to the hospital herself to have life-saving intestinal surgery. Looking back, I now understand that all of this was simply too much for her body to physically endure. The tragic loss of Alex was more than Jeannie could bear. Overcome with grief, she began to blame me. Then she began blaming God. She blamed everything and everybody. All of the heartache and pain had a devastating effect on our relationship, and there were times when life seemed insurmountable. Jeannie's once intense love for God and for me was replaced by a coldness and a hatred towards both of us. Though she administered the truth of Jesus Christ to others for years, the devastation of losing our precious son in the most unspeakable way had taken her to a place where she professed that she no longer believed in a God who could be so cruel. It sounds almost Job-like, doesn't it? Imagine. I want you to try to put yourself in the shoes of this man, this, this husband and father. With all that spinning around, what do you do? With all of that tragedy and grief, your career now in jeopardy, your wife in a spiritual tailspin, your marriage hanging by a thread, your surviving children now living with all this uncertainty, what do you do? And from a human standpoint, there seems to be no hope and no solutions on the horizon. So how do you lead your family? in such impossible circumstances. 
Well, today we're going to wrap up chapter 4 in the book of Romans by looking at a story of impossibility. And we're going to see what Paul has to say about things like faith and hope. So grab your Bibles and let's turn to Romans chapter 4. We're focusing on verses 17 to 25 this morning, but let's back up to verse 13, and we'll quickly review some of what we covered last Sunday, because really 13 to 25 is one unit of thought in Paul's way of writing. Romans 4, beginning in verse 13, hear God's word. For the promise to Abraham, or to his descendants, that he would be heir of the world, was not through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if those who are of the law are heirs, then faith is made void, and the promise is nullified. For the law brings about wrath, but where there is no law, there is also no violation. For this reason it's by faith, in order that it may be in accordance with grace, so that the promise will be guaranteed to all the descendants, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, a father of many nations have I made you, in the presence of whom he believed. Now go ahead and stop there. I know it's in the middle of a verse but the, the structure in this particular passage is a little strange. We're going we're gonna to stop there, and let's just talk about what we learned last Sunday. First of all, we looked at how Abraham became the heir of the world through these great promises given to him by God. And the big idea was that Abraham's status of the heir to these promises came not by, by him doing good works, not by his obedience to the law, but by what? By faith, simply by his trust in God. And we saw how that promise must come by faith. It has to come by faith because if it comes by works, then to some degree it's earned. And if it's earned, then grace is absolutely meaningless. Grace is nullified. And then finally we saw how even Gentile Christians, folks like you and I, are true descendants of Abraham. Not by blood or ethnicity, of course, but by the same way that Abraham was credited with righteousness, by faith. And so he is the father of every person who has been saved by grace alone, through faith alone. And we, along with Abraham, as we sit here this morning, are heirs to the promises made by God. Isn't that great? It's fantastic. Now, let's pick up in the middle of verse 17. These are our our verses we're going to focus on this morning. Even God, who gives life to the dead and calls into being that which does not exist, in hope against hope, he believed, that's Abraham, So that he might become a father of many nations according to that which had been spoken. So shall your descendants be. Without becoming weak in faith, he contemplated his own body, now as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old, and the deadness of Sarah's womb. Yet with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong, strong in faith, giving glory to God and being fully assured that what God had promised, he was able to perform." Therefore, it was also credited to him as righteousness. Now, not for his sake only was it written that it was credited to him, but for our sake also, to whom it will be credited as those who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He who was delivered over because of our transgressions and was raised because of or for our justification. And so we've finally gotten through chapter 4, right? We're moving along. Isn't that great? All right. So... As, as Paul writes these, this last clump of verses, it seems clear to me that he has a particular story in mind, right? As he's writing in the first century to this church in Rome, he has an old story, an ancient story in mind. And that story comes from Genesis 17. 
Now, last Sunday, we breezed through a whole series of passages in Genesis. I think we were in 12, 13, 15, and 17. But today, we want to dig a little bit deeper into chapter 17 so that we can better understand what Paul was talking about here in Romans 4. So go back, go ahead and turn back in your Bibles to Genesis 17, which is not hard to find, right? First book of the Bible. Genesis chapter 17, and we'll look at some key verses here. Now, remember, as you're turning there, Remember that Abraham had been given this great series of promises by God. And what were they? They were land and renown, that his name would be great, and blessing and this very specific promise that God would bring from Abraham many nations. In fact, so many descendants would come from Abraham, God said, that they would be like the dust on the ground and the number of stars in the sky. So uncountable numbers of people would come from him. But now as we come here to Genesis 17, decades have passed since God first promised those things to Abraham, and now he's pushing 100 years old in age. He and his wife Sarai have no children together. That's an important fact. They have no children together. Okay, Great promise, many nations, lots of descendants, but now I'm 100 years old and my wife and I have no children. Abraham does have one child though, right? Ishmael. Ishmael was born through an arranged relationship with a woman named Hagar, who was uh, his wife's maidservant. And so think about this. When you're 100 years old, and you've got a broken down body, and you look at your wife, who's no spring chicken either, and she's been barren all of her life, it would be easy and actually quite sensible to give up hope, wouldn't it? To just give up hope. That, hope that you'll have even one descendant, let alone So many descendants that you can't even count them. Honestly, who could blame Abraham at the age of 100 if he'd started to doubt God's promises? I don't think any of us would have done any better. But then God comes to Abraham here in chapter 17, and he reinforces the promises in verses 1 to 8. Abraham, you will be a father of many nations. In fact, kings will be among your descendants. Abraham, I will I will make an everlasting covenant with your descendants, and I will give them the entire land of Canaan. And then in verses 9 to 14, God establishes circumcision circumcision as this great sign of the covenant between God and between Abraham and his descendants. Now, lest Sarai feel like she's been left out of the mix, look at verse 15, because God's about to address her situation as well. Genesis 17, 15, Then God said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and indeed I will give you a son by her. Then I will bless her, and she will be a mother of nations. Kings of peoples will come from her. Now, you got to understand a little bit about the story here. This is an amazing example of God's grace, right? Because Sarah was no peach. Can I get an amen, ladies? She was no peach. The last time we saw Sarah, a chapter before, she was urging her husband Abraham to sleep with Hagar in order to force a fulfillment of God's promise. And then, as soon as that had happened, as soon as she was pregnant, she began to mistreat this poor girl. And so this is, a, this is not a pretty story, and it does not reflect well on Sarah at all. And yet here, God is graciously including her in the promise to Abraham. That's amazing stuff. She's not even close to perfect or holy, and in spite of the fact that her faith is obviously weak, she is included. 
It's as if God was saying, look, don't worry, Sarah. I'm going to bless you in spite of yourself. And, and isn't that the way God often acts with us? Lest we stand in judgment, right, of Sarah, isn't that how he often acts with us? He blesses us in spite of ourselves. And this is one of the great themes of Scripture. Whatever God does, this is such an important truth. Whatever he does, he does in spite of us, not because of us. Because he's sovereign and he's good, right? Look at the long list of biblical characters who who have stumbled and who have failed. Men like Noah and Jonah and Jacob and Moses and Samson and, and David and Peter and so many more. And yet, God has accomplished his purposes, including each of them and his great plan, in spite of themselves. Now, go back to the text. How does Abraham respond to these promises concerning Sarah? The Bible says he laughed. He laughed. How many of us feel like, yeah, I would have laughed too? Right? I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm not quite 100. Um, I'm, I'm a little over halfway there. But I would laugh I mean, uproariously if I got this promise from God, right? There's no possible way. So look at verse 17. Then Abraham fell on his face and he laughed. And he said in his heart, will a child be born to a man 100 years old? And will Sarah, who's 90 years old, bear a child? Good questions, right? I mean, that's a logical question. I love how the Bible is, is, is logical. This is exactly how a human being would react. Generally speaking, the answer to those questions is no. Not a chance. Old people like this do not produce children. So Abraham is on good grounds to laugh here. At least from a statistical perspective, it makes a lot of sense. So what does he do? Verse 18, he brings up his other son, Ishmael. Ishmael, right? Verse 18. uh, Yeah, verse 18. And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. In other words, here's what he was saying. I wish that Ishmael were somehow qualified to receive your special blessing. But look at God's response beginning in verse 19. But God said, no. Don't don't just read over that. Abraham says, oh, that you would just use Ishmael. God says, no. Not my plan. But Sarah, your wife, will bear you a son. And you shall call his name Isaac. And I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant for his descendants after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Listen to God's grace in this. They had forced the issue, and yet God says, I've heard you in your love for your son. And so what does he say? I will bless him and will make him fruitful and will multiply him exceedingly. He shall become the father of 12 princes, and I will make him a great nation. God is gracious, right? But my covenant, he says in verse 21, I will establish with Isaac, whom Sarah will bear to you at this season next year. Now, that's, that's a very specific promise. After decades of waiting for this to come true, God pins it down here to the next 12 months. So imagine this, men, men, that Abraham will celebrate his 100th birthday painting the nursery and changing diapers. Wow. Can't imagine. Don't you love God's sense of timing? Say, not always, right? Sometimes a blessing or an answer to prayer comes at the very time that you least expect it. And sometimes it comes after you've given up hope in your own circumstances. When you've surveyed the landscape and said, I don't see a way out of this. I don't see hope. I don't see solutions. That's often when God steps in and provides an answer. Now, why does that happen? 
Man, wouldn't you love to know the answer to that? Wouldn't you, wouldn't you just love to say, okay, there's this, there's this system in Scripture where well, this happens and this, you know, cause and effect. This, this, and this. It's not the way God works, right? I don't have a blanket answer on the why question. Why? Because, because God's ways are not our ways. We can't understand everything he does. He sings, sees things infinitely and all at one time, and we see through this narrow tunnel. So I don't have all the answers to why. But in general, what we see in Scripture is that God does impossible things through his servants in order to show his power and his sovereignty and his goodness. And he often does them once human beings have come to the end of themselves. Why? So that they have no other option but to trust in him alone. There's a great lesson in that for us, isn't it? Right? That God often will come to the rescue once we come to the end of ourselves. And we have no choice but to, but to finally, and, and Lord, make it our first response, not our last response, that we would finally turn to him. And say, Lord, I'm out of options. I need you. So, with that in mind now, let's flip back to Romans 4. Because that's the story that Paul has in mind as he's writing here in chapter 4 of Romans. And we'll look at how he relates that story to his first century audience and to us today. So the first point that Paul wants to make here is that God does impossible things. Amen. We're not naturalists, right? We believe that God can do impossible things. Things that in our, from our limited vision look like they cannot happen. He does impossible things. Look at verse 17 of Romans 4. Even God who gives life to the dead and calls into being that which does not exist. You see those two bullet points on the screen. Now back in Genesis 17, the text told us exactly who was speaking these promises to Abraham. I am El Shaddai. God said, I am God Almighty. I am God most powerful, is how he came to Abraham in Genesis 17. I am sovereign over all things, and I do as I please. And if I will it, I can give you and Sarah a son, even at the age of 100. This is not a problem for me. I mean, right? This is a God who creates all things ex nihilo. From nothing, he created all things. You think I can't have a 90-year-old woman become pregnant? This is not a problem for me. Not only that, I can easily bring forth nations from you, descendants who will worship me for thousands and thousands of years after you're gone. And so Paul says that the same El Shaddai gives life to the dead, that he can call into being things that do not exist. What does that mean? It means God does the impossible according to his sovereign grace. That's what God is in the business of doing impossible things according to his sovereign grace. But we don't naturally trust God, do we? It's, it's, it's part of our fallen condition. We don't naturally trust that God will do it. So here's what usually happens. We look around at our, our circumstances, and we look for human solutions to get out of it. Right? How can we fix this problem? We run into a situation like Abraham's. We say, I've got lots of resources I can go to. I can fix this on my own. And that's what Abraham and Sarah had been trying to do, enforcing this, this proxy birth mom, Hagar, into the situation And the result, Ishmael, was not God's plan. Not his plan to to fulfill his promises. And you picture God saying, Abraham, I don't need your help. I'm sovereign. I created all things from nothing. I don't need your help in this. Can you see it? God's promise was going to depend on sovereign grace, not on human ingenuity. Not on human resourcefulness. Ishmael was not the son of promise precisely because he was humanly possible. Did you hear that? 
He was not the son of promise simply because he was not, or simply because he was humanly possible. I'll do it my way, Abraham, God seems to say. But in that moment of hearing this impossible promise, Abraham seems to have been so bewildered by the thought of it all that he, I think his mind went you know, haywire. He couldn't process it. And first of all, he laughs. And then secondly, he wonders aloud, Lord, why can't you just do this in the normal way? I've already got a son. He's right here. He's, he's probably 14 years old about this time. Ishmael, in flesh and blood, strapping young lad, seems like a good kid. This seems like a really easy way to make this happen, Lord. Use Ishmael. To Abraham, it must have seemed like a no-brainer. So why? Why wouldn't God opt to do that? Why would he use anything less than the path of impossibility? We get the answer, actually, in the next chapter of Genesis. God comes another time to Abraham in Genesis 18, and he again confirms that Sarah will give birth to a son and to an heir. And who laughs this time? Do you remember? Sarah laughs, and she scoffs at the very idea. And hear what God says. Why did Sarah laugh? Is anything too difficult for the Lord? That's the reason. That's the reason why God will not use Ishmael but Isaac. God desires to show us that nothing is too difficult for him. That his purpose and all that he does is to to magnify his mighty hand and his sovereign grace and in that process reveal to us more about himself, how loving and gracious and good he is. That's the way our God operates. Now here's the important picture that's being drawn for the church. For us. Remember, the context of Romans 4 is it's part of this book of salvation. So we say, well, why is he relating this ancient story when he's trying to to drive home a point about salvation? Well, look down at verse 19 in the text. Paul tells us that Abraham contemplated or considered his own body. Okay, as you get older, you do that a lot. You contemplate and consider what's going on. Now it's as good as dead, the text says. And he considers the deadness or the barren condition of Sarah's womb. So get the picture. A man's body and a woman's womb, both of them are dead. Yet he just wrote in verse 17, what? That God gives life to the dead. And that's what he did. He gave life to Abraham's body. And he gave life to Sarah's womb. Why? In order to fulfill this impossible promise. What does scripture say about you and I? Before we are converted, before we come to know Christ and trust in him. Ephesians 2, and you were what? Dead. You were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked. But God, who's rich in mercy, even when we were dead, made us alive in Christ. You see where Paul's driving at here? God does the impossible. He gives life where there is only death. A dead body a dead womb, a dead soul, all of us, a dead soul. And he breathes life into each to accomplish his sovereign will. That's how we got here, folks. That's how you are here this morning. You were dead in your sins. You were dead, 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 dead. And God made you alive in Christ. Amen. In Isaac, God calls into being that which does not exist. He calls into existence not only a son and an heir for Abraham, but of all the nations and descendants that he promised after him. In that moment, those those nations and those people didn't exist, but they certainly will exist as history unfolds. Why? Because the God who is sovereign over history declares it to be so. Back to us, back to Ephesians 2. 
We were once sons and daughters of disobedience. We were once walking in disobedience and the lusts of our flesh. We were once by nature children of wrath, but then God called into being that which did not exist in us, saving faith. Do you see what Paul's driving at here? We didn't have saving faith. He called into existence what we did not have and made us alive. Dead. Made us alive. Didn't have saving faith. Gave it to us as a gift. This is what God does. He does the impossible. Your salvation was impossible by human means. Do you know that? I don't know what you've been taught at other churches that somehow you, you inclined yourself towards God in your own power and strength. That is not the testimony of Scripture. The testimony of Scripture is that you're dead. And, and, and people don't raise themselves to life. And God called you out of that. And he regenerated your heart. And he gave you the gift of faith. And you were made alive in him. God does the impossible. So God takes a dead soul. And he brings us to life. He takes a wretched sinner and gives us saving faith. With man, this is impossible. Isn't this what we read this morning in Matthew 19 in the call to worship? The story of the rich young ruler, Matthew 19. I say to you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Then who can be saved? Who can be saved? And Jesus looks at his disciples. I mean, I always try to picture what he would have... Was, was he angry at that point? Was he frustrated with them? Righteous anger that they didn't get it? Or was he... I think he was compassionate here. I think he's looking in his eyes and he's, he's full of grace and he says, Guys, guys, with people this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. How can a man raise the dead? How can a man create something out of nothing? They can't. Only El Shaddai, only God most powerful, is able to do the impossible. That's what Paul's driving at here in chapter 4. Now, how did Abraham respond? How did he respond? Now, we've already seen a couple interesting responses in the moment. Immediately, Abraham laughed at this, right? And then he He brought up the possibility of Ishmael, but what's the testimony of Abraham's faith over time after that? What's the testimony of faith in his life? Well, Paul tells us a number of things in our passage about how Abraham responds. Verse 18 says, in hope against hope, he believed. We'll talk more about that in a second. Verse 19 says, without becoming weak in faith. Verse 20 says, he did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith. And verse 21 says, being fully assured or fully convinced that what God had promised, he was able to do. So Abram's faith was, was strong, wasn't it? I, man, again, I love the testimony of Scripture. It speaks to the human condition. In that moment, every one of us would have laughed, I think. Every one of us would have said, wait, I've got a better idea. But over time, the testimony of Abraham's faith is a very positive one. Now, how do we define hope? Verse 18 is fine. In hope against hope, he believed. We tend to think we know what hope is. What is it actually? Biblical hope is a confident expectation that's built on faith. Okay? Biblical hope is a confident expectation that's built on faith. It's that peaceful assurance that we get that something hasn't happened yet, but we know will. It's a peaceful assurance. This, is, this, this promise is given to me, and I know it's going to come true. Here's a way to think about it. A father tells his child that they're going to Six Flags tomorrow. And that child believes that he will indeed get to Six Flags because his father gave him his word. And that, 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 that's faith. 
That's, that's, that faith is built on the character of that father and his past faithfulness. And so that child has faith. Daddy says we're going. I believe we're going. So that trust in dad brings about a joyful anticipation in the child's heart. You know that excitement as a kid? I'm going to Disneyland or I'm going to Six Flags? That's hope. It's built on faith. It's joyful expectation that this thing is coming. It's going to happen. And so we look at this, biblical hope, and hope against hope, Abraham believed. Now, understand, biblical hope is not optimism. It's not just, hey, I'm really optimistic about this. It's not the power of positive thinking. Well, if I just think really positive things, then I'm sure it's going to come into fruition. That's not what it is. Neither is it taking a blind leap into the dark. Contrary to all reason, contrary to common sense. That's not what we're talking about here. When Paul writes that Abraham hoped against hope, he's saying that Abraham, first of all, understood that what was being promised was not humanly possible. He understood that. From a human perspective, hope had reached its limits. Yet Abraham believes. Why? Because he knows God is able to do it. He understands the attributes of Yahweh. This is why we study the attributes of God so that we trust him more. He understood that God was able to do it and that he would do it because God is faithful. He's been faithful. And so Abram knows this. That's why he has hope. Now catch this now. Abraham never denied the reality of his circumstances. Sometimes you hear about people having this sort of weird blind hope. You know, it's sort of an empty-headed sense of hope. Notice Abraham fully understands his circumstances. He's not ignoring reality. He's like, look, my body doesn't work anymore. I've contemplated it. I've considered it. This can't be done. But faith and hope are built on you and I putting our trust that God is the Lord over reality. Does that make sense? Yeah, this is reality, but I know God is the Lord over reality. He can do as he pleases. So faith and hope don't say, Well, these circumstances and roadblocks aren't there. If I just don't think about them, they don't exist. Faith and hope simply declare that God is not bound by my circumstances like I am. That he can transcend my circumstances. This is faith and this is hope. Make sense? And so Paul reports that Abraham didn't grow weary. He didn't grow weak in his faith. He didn't waver. Now, does that mean that he was absolutely perfect in his hope? I tend not to think so, because to say he never had a doubt again would make him sort of inhuman. I think like us, it's probable that Abraham you know, went through periods where he had some doubts at times, but I think what Paul's recording here is that the overall disposition of his heart was one of trust, that faith actually marked his life. He trusted that God would be faithful to his promise, and that God was El Shaddai, that he had all the power necessary to bring those promises to fruition. Now, let's bring this back to salvation and back to us today. Notice, uh, look at verses 22 and 23, because this is important. Up to this point, we've gotten this great history lesson about the story of Abraham and Sarai and Hagar and all this, and, and we've heard about how, how you know, God does the impossible things. But still, it's sort of in an ancient context. But look at verse 22. Paul says, Therefore, or this is why, it was also credited to him as righteousness, Not for his sake only was it written that it was credited to him, but what? For our sake also. It was written for our sake also. Right? To whom it will be credited. 
if, we're, if, if we trust as Abraham trusted. Abraham trusted in God, and the righteousness of God was imputed to him, again, not by works, not by obedience, but because of his faith. And now Paul is saying, look, this was written down for you, Roman church, and by extension, church at Oak Hill Bible. This was written down for our edification, for us. God had us in view when he inspired Moses to write Genesis 15, 6. That's huge. Why? Because he wants us to understand and grasp that we are justified before God in the exact same way that Abraham was. Not by works, not by obedience, but by faith. That salvation has always come to God's people by faith alone. So all those things we talked about, we talk about in the Reformed Church. Election, calling, regeneration, faith, justification. From the simple understanding that Abraham had of those things back in 2100 BC, right? 4,000 years ago to the more fully revealed faith that we have today in A.D. 2016, it's been the same way. To those of us, as Paul writes in verses 24 and 25, who believe in God, in Him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. Now, Abraham would not have had that understanding of that, right? But in the more fully revealed faith that we have today, this progressing revelation of God's Word... We know that it's through the raising of Jesus from the dead, who believe that Jesus was delivered up. Why? Because of our transgressions, Paul writes, and was raised to life for our justification. It's beautiful language. Amen and amen, right? By grace through faith, we're heirs of the promise. We are true children of Abraham, credited with the righteousness of God by faith. Listen, Paul, if you want to read a companion New Testament book to this, read Galatians 3 and 4. It's loaded with this language. Paul writes to the New Testament believers in Galatians. He says, now you brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. He brings Isaac into it. He says, hey, remember how Isaac was the child of promise? You, Christians, who trust in the fact that Jesus has been raised from the dead, you're like Isaac. You're a child of promise. That should excite us, right? That's what he says. He says later, he says, if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to the promise. Put yourself in Genesis 12, 13, 15, 17. Those great promises given to Abraham. Ours. That's not exciting at all. God has done the impossible in our lives, folks. You've got to understand that. Your salvation is impossible by human means. It's a miracle. Truly miraculous stuff. He's raised dead men and dead women to life. And he's given us the faith we need to trust in him. And in his promises. Not only that, now he invites us to come to him through this great high priest that we have, Jesus Christ, to come to him and to trust him for even more. Wow. So as we close now, let's go back to the original story that I read you about this man who lost his son to this tragic suicide and his wife is in a tailspin. Remember, he felt... There was no hope and no solution. That He was faced with an impossible, insurmountable situation. So here's what he writes. While Jeannie's grief caused her to run away from God, I desperately ran to God for refuge, strength, and comfort for my broken heart. And there in the secret place of his presence and the shelter of his, his unconditional love, I wept my way to the throne of grace. I realized that I needed to love Jeannie no matter how difficult it was. 
God had used her love to turn me back to him in college and to redirect my plans for the future, and now it was my turn to help her. Statistically, divorce is very common following the death of a child, especially with a suicide. And so, humanly speaking, my situation appeared impossible. I desperately sought his face, usually praying for our marriage in the very early hours of the morning. His promises became my daily sustenance and his presence my very life. Scripture says that love never fails, and by God's grace, I did all I could to love my precious Jenny. During the weekends, we would just be together, and during the week, week, work week, I would leave little love notes around the house. And when Jeannie's grief and pain surfaced and accusations and insults against me, I did my best just to listen and to guard my mouth from anything that would further hurt her. It was a very painful season, and there were many times when I wanted to simply run away. But in the word, I learned that God is my helper, the sustainer of my soul. Gently and graciously, God began to do the impossible. Working his way back into Jeannie's heart, I watched as his love began to bring glimmers of light into her thinking. Scripture teaches that God can make a way when there seems to be no way. And I have seen this happen over the past seven years. Today, Jeannie and I are more in love than ever before. Our focus is once again on making more disciples of Jesus Christ. And part of Jeannie's motivation is to ensure that the evil that visited our household is turned around for God's glory. What did we learn, he asks. First, that God's grace is absolutely sufficient. The situation may be painful, and it might seem impossible, but the grace of God's Spirit will strengthen you. Second, he writes, prayer is incredibly powerful. Make the secret place of his presence your resting place and pour out your heart to him. Prayer releases God's power into your circumstances. Third, step out in faith. As we step out in weakness, God steps in with his strength and his power. We start by being courageous and seeking God's face. We go boldly to his throne and pour out our hearts to him, often with deep tears and brokenness, and that's where he meets us. Friends, that's a testimony of faith and hope. A testimony of how God does impossible things. Things that we look out and go, I, I don't know how to fix this. There, there is no solution. I have no hope. And this man fled to, fled to God in every way and showed great love to his wife. So here's my wrap-up question for us this morning. What impossible thing or things are you trusting God for right now? Have you written them off? I, I, I don't see a way out. I don't see an answer. It's beyond me. Are you going to him and asking for things? In hope against hope, do you believe that God has the power to change it according to his will? Have you been looking for human solutions to your situation rather than relentlessly going to word, going to the word and to prayer for answers? And even if God's answer to you has been no, or not right now, do you trust that his grace is absolutely sufficient to help you endure through the storm? Even if that storm lasts a lifetime, that his grace is sufficient. For those of you who are saying in your hearts right now, not nope, doesn't apply to me. I'm coasting through life. Everything is good. Not praying for anything impossible right now. Just stop and consider your salvation for a moment.
Stop and consider your salvation. We've been promised that someday we're going to be glorified in heaven. Listen to this. That we will love perfectly. Oh, that's impossible. That it will be impossible for us to sin. No way. We will no longer be selfish or petty. No more grumbling. No more getting our feelings hurt. No more insisting on being right. And always considering others more important than ourselves. Does that not sound impossible? Consider your salvation. If you're not struggling with some impossible burden today, consider the impossibility of you, a sinner, being declared righteous in God's sight. And if you've taken that for granted, take a second look at that. That's impossible. Consider the cost of your forgiveness. Consider the righteousness that's been imputed to you, the very righteousness of Christ. Consider that someday God will fulfill his promise to utterly complete the work he's begun in you and then to give you the gift of heaven for all eternity. And so in response, praise him. How many times have I said that in this series? This is why we praise him. It's all over the book of Romans. Praise him for the miracle that you are, the impossibility that you sit here today. Praise him. Praise him for salvation. Bow your heads. I want to give you a few moments on your own to to consider that, to consider those things I just mentioned, and to praise him for your salvation. Or, if you've been struggling with a burden that seems impossible, now's a great time to start at the throne of grace and begin to pour out your heart to him. Take a few moments in silence.